Teach me your decrees, O Lord, I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all my heart. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. Give me an eagerness for your laws rather than a love for money. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. Reassure me of your promise made to those who fear you. Help me abandon my shameful ways, for your regulations are good. I long to obey your commandments. Renew my life with your goodness. This is God's word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So, uh, yeah, last week, since I am taking a sabbatical over the summer, I pre-recorded a podcast with my youth pastor. So look out for that sometime in August. Um, So I got to interview my youth pastor for the first time. And we reminisced about a time when I would say that I began to love the Bible. And uh, so I am one of those people that was raised in Christianity. But my youth pastor, Missy, she remembered me as someone who kind of struggled. She said, uh, I think the way she said it was, I had a lot of goals in life, and if they didn't go just my way, um, I, I was unhappy with life and God and everything, which sounds about right. And uh, she, she considered that I was someone who kind of struggled with my faith a little bit. Thanks, Ray. That thing's loud. Um, and I was raised in this faith, raised around the Bible, but in many ways, that faith hadn't really clicked for me. And then during, uh, during my time in youth group at that church, I had a more profound experience of understanding that God's grace was for me. Um, it was at a youth convention. Some of you who've uh, walked with me for some time have heard this story before. But um, I realized at that convention, I was a part of God's story and that God might actually want me around. That was probably the core, the core piece. God wants me around and has um, a desire to have me in his family, um, and my forgiveness was key to that. When I came home from that convention, uh, my mom would tell you I had a new desire, and that was to read and understand the Bible. That, that was a new thing. I kind of hardly understood it, but now I wanted to understand it. Um, I was digging in it, looking for things. I, I had a unique thing I did as a 17-year-old kid where I would watch televangelists on TV, write down everything they said and go check and see if it was right. That's what I did at age uh, 17. But there was something in me now that wanted to know what was in the Bible. And I'm curious uh, for you to think about your life. Um, Have you ever had that kind of hunger to understand what's in the Bible? Um, Is that something you're interested in? Is it something you miss that you used to experience? And this evening, I want to invite us... um, either back to or maybe for the first time to considering this this thing, this Bible and what's in it and why you would want to know what's in there, to want to know it deeply. 
And, uh, and as I thought about this and I thought about us, I thought, why might some of us not want to get into it and read it deeply and understand it? A couple of things came to mind. I think some of us, and I, I'm reflecting on myself here and assuming that some of you are the way I was, and I don't know if we all know quite what it is we're dealing with, this Bible, and how to use it, what it is or how to use it. And then I think we lose an awareness of our place in its story and the God who's at the center of it. So what it is, how to use it, and just this awareness of our place in it. And that's essentially what I want to go through this evening, are those things, what it is, how to use it, and um, kind of how to take delight in it, maybe for the first time or maybe again. So what it is, I'm going to start with what it's not. And, and this, is a, this is a little bit of an it is, but it isn't, but it's not your typical book. And the, the reason I feel like I need to say this is I've had this conversation with many folks and, and you could say, you know, it looks like a book. It sure looks like a book. Um, and it technically is a book, but usually today when you buy a book, it's one that you, you start at the beginning and you just read through to the end. Um, and if you read the Bible like that, you can do it. People do it all the time but it will often feel very disjointed. At best, it'll be a disjointed experience that you get through. Or at worst, you will go, I don't know what just happened in that year. I, I read that thing. It, it can feel like a kind of a rocky road and you don't know how it all comes together. Why is that? Simply, I would say, it wasn't really designed to be read like that. The Bible's more of a collection, more like a themed collection. There is a story behind the Bible, absolutely. Um, there is a God who is speaking in and through the Bible, but the Bible isn't written like a novel. Uh, psalm 119 that Ty read to us, um, she didn't read us the whole psalm. It's very, very long. Um, she read us a, a few scriptures from it, but even in this short section of Psalm 119, there are different words describing the Bible, the, the word, decrees, instructions, commands, law, promise. And we're going to come back to some of those and talk about what each of those are getting at briefly in a bit. But there are so many different layers and elements to what we encounter in the scriptures that you can't just, um, you can't just read it front to back like a book. The way I would describe it is something like a library, like a mini library. You don't walk into a library and go to the left side of the library and go, I'm going to pick up this book and then I'm going to go the next one and the next one and the next one until I get to the right side of the library, right? That would be a strange thing to do. What do you, what do, you do in a library? Well, you understand the library is organized somehow. It's organized usually by genre and author name. And you might go in there looking for certain things. You might, um, you might go in saying, well, I'd like to learn some history. Um, I would like to uh, learn about pets um, or something like that. I would like to see if they've got anything. Oh, look at that. We have an image of the library. I'm so happy. So I didn't think that was going to work. Um, 
yeah, maybe, maybe you, you go in there and you say, I want to I learn something about the place that I live. I'm going to go to geography. I'm going to follow the, the, you know, the alphabet and figure out here's T for Tucson. You, you would know that you'd go in, you'd go hunting for certain things, right? And the Bible's kind of similar. Um, you might ask yourself, what do I need to read? Do I need to learn the history that's behind um, this faith? Do I need to learn the stories, the, the foundational stories? Maybe you've heard of people like Moses or Noah, right? Or do I need to get into the fine details and verify the history of this thing? Because that's a valid thing to do. You should care that the history is real, right? Um, or do I need instructions in the faith or how to worship God? Or do I need instructions on just life? and what a wise life looks like? Um, or do I need to learn about the central figure, Jesus? Do I understand enough about Jesus? Um, or what his impact on his disciples was, and therefore what might his impact on modern people be? You know, what are your questions? You'd go to the Bible with your questions, and then you would look around the library and choose the books off the shelf that would speak to those questions. Now, that might seem like kind of an alien approach to us because we pick it up like a book. Um, but that's actually how a lot, most, most of history, much of history would have experienced these scriptures. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but when, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, there were pots with the scrolls stored in them to, to keep them. They were each separate scrolls. There was kind of a collection. Many of these were potentially stolen, uh, but there was a collection of these letters and books and poems, and they were kept together in a, in a primitive library. In, uh, in other settings that weren't quite as remote as the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you might have had temples or synagogues, and in those places, they would keep the library of the scrolls, and they would take one down. You read about Jesus when he begins his ministry. He goes into one of the synagogues, which is just an assembly place, a teaching place, and he takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So there's a scroll of that one particular book, and he unrolls it, and he begins to read a portion, and he says, today this is being fulfilled in your hearing, and the people were shocked because Isaiah was a prophet who had told them what was going to happen someday to their people. And Jesus was saying, I am here to fulfill this. Then there's the New Testament, and this is the, the set of documents that the Christian church kept. And around their time in history, um, parchment was being used more often. And, and actually, in the early Christian days, people started to keep parchments together and bind them together and put covers on them. And, uh, and the, the modern book was born. Actually, the Christian church, um, not that they invented this, but they were a big part of popularizing the idea of the codex, which is where they kept a lot of different scriptures together. And, and a, a codex is kind of another word for like a block of wood, because it was a strange way to store documents in a in a block that was new, that was modern technology. Kind of like now, my whole Bible's in this thing. Isn't that weird? In that little computer box. 
So they called it a block or a codex. And, uh, and for the first time, you could kind of flip through the, the pages, but very few people had these. Very, very few people had them. Um, so the Bible is more like a collection than a single book that you read Genesis to, uh, to Revelation. So if you were to look at the table of contents um, in, in your Bible, like if you, if you brought one with you or if you had one at home and you flipped to the table of contents, you would see a lot of different names of books, of course, and you would see things like the account at the beginning uh, of creation. And, and you, would, you would see that there's a whole book about that. You might not know that the first chapter of that book is actually written in prose. It's more poetic than like a history, um, though it is working out things that happened in history, but it's more like a great song. And then you begin to chronicle the formation of the people of God and their first savior figures pop up in the book of Genesis. And I say that because there are these, these key figures like Noah, who really saves God's people um, through his faith that he places in God, and God provides a way of escape that he never would have designed himself. Um, but he leads his family onto it to be saved. And then at the end of uh, Genesis, there's Joseph, um, another uh, savior figure who was actually rejected by his own family. Um, they wanted to kill him um, and do away with him, but instead he becomes their savior from great famine. And if any of you have hung around Christian circles very long, you're, you're going, that sounds, there's a little, I hear a little Jesus in some of those stories, right? Well, you're going to read about those kind of things in Genesis, and then you move into Exodus, and we see this community that's being delivered again. They're being saved from oppression in a sinful society through another savior figure who's empowered by God named Moses, and they move forward toward a homeland called Canaan. But in the middle, after their great deliverance, they're handed a law. And you, there's this famous, you know, there's movies about this, the tablets um, that come down from Mount Sinai. Um, and this law has two tables. There's two portions of it. The first has to do with who God is and our relationship toward God. And the second has to do with our relationship toward other people. You shouldn't lie, cheat, steal, murder, and so forth. And then from there, they begin to enter, move toward their homeland. And you have books like Joshua. And here they're dealing with the sinfulness and oppression within themselves. And, it, and you get into things like Judges and Kings and Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. And you see that they cannot keep this law that they've been given they're dealing with corruption from outside of themselves and from inside of themselves. And then later um, in the Old Testament, there's going to be prophets or preachers who call people back to God, and they're going to warn of judgments that would come because of wickedness and reminds pe remind people that God has a great plan to deliver them from everything that, he, um, that, that has been brought about onto them because of their sins. Things like what Jesus read out of the book of Isaiah. And there's some other writings scattered in there, like Esther, and, um, and then you read about a man named Boaz and the story of Ruth, who's another like redeemer figure, but Ruth is this faithful outsider. You read stories about people like this. There's collections of wise sayings like Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes, which reads 
you know, kind of like a like an ancient piece of dark philosophy. Um, and then this large collection of psalms that are songs and prayers that God's people shared and prayed and sang. And some of them are joyful, um, but one of them um, ends with one of the just darkest sayings in all of Scripture. It's a a desire that justice would be brought upon the children of their oppressors. It's it's sad. It's hard. Um, and you see in places like that that God's people um, have great profound joy that they anchor in God, and they also deal with deep sorrow and anger and pain. At the end of the Old Testament, and by the way, testament simply means promise or covenant. Um, at the end of the Old Testament, there's, uh, after some prophets, there's kind of this longing, this waiting um, for their redeemer to come. And there's actually 400 years in, in history where no scripture was written uh, to the Hebrew people. And then comes the life of Jesus. And like I said, he gets up and he reads something out of the Old Testament and says, today, this is coming true in your hearing. And that's a big deal. He claimed to be fulfilling major portions of the Old Testament. Um, and, and you have four biographers of Jesus that we read in the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Mark is the oldest. Uh, he's probably writing from the Apostle Peter's perspective. It's a very punchy, short uh, story about Jesus compared to some of the other ones. Matthew is clearly writing to Jewish people. He starts with a Jewish lineage, and he uses a lot of, um, a lot of stories and connections that would have been more convincing to a, Jew a Jewish audience, considering that Jesus was um, potentially fulfilling their Old Testament. Uh, Luke writes um, like a lawyer, like a physician, because he is. He writes in the best Greek. He's the most learned. Um, and he also wrote a book called Acts. Uh, and John writes in a, in a much more ethereal sometimes, but also personal way. And he's clearly speaking to the Greek mind of his time. He's speaking about, he opens his book talking about the logos or the wisdom. And this is what the Greek people were seeking after. And he, he begins by saying, this Jesus is the logos after whom you seek. But he, uh, but he tends to tell stories about Jesus that are, it's so evident that he was there just the details that he shares. And then Luke in the book of Acts uh, introduces us to his mentor, Paul, who had a dramatic conversion and carried the news of Christianity around the Roman world. And most of the New Testament letters are from Paul. Um, Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples wrote some, but Paul wrote a lot of it. And then the Bible ends with a, an apocalypse, which is that's a word for an unveiling. Like if you were to imagine you're at a theater and the show is about to start and you go, what's behind there? And the curtain opens up and you see all of the actors and you go, whoa, it's a Western, right? That's, that's an apocalypse. That's what it is. It's an unveiling when you see behind the curtain. And so the end of the, the, end of the Bible, John, the oldest disciple, is... He has avoided death several times. He's imprisoned on a little island called Patmos, which is now a beautiful vacation spot if you want to go there. Um, but he was there in, imprisoned and just waiting for his death. And God gave him a vision of what is going on behind the curtain in spiritual places. And he wrote it down. And it's unique. 
It's not the first apocalypse. Uh, Daniel is kind of like this. It's a unique type of literature that uses dramatic visual imagery to illustrate history, the future, and the spiritual struggle. But you see, I'm describing all these things. That's a lot of different things going on, isn't it? Inside the cover of this book that you can now buy for like 1995 at Walmart, right? Um, there's a lot going on. The word Bible, by the way, um, comes from the name of a Phoenician city where they started to bind paper together. Um, it's not even a Christian term, but the stories that are in here are uniquely Christian. And they're bound together for a reason because the Christian church has, has treasured these because they're speaking of the God of our faith. So the Christian Bible is this collection of vastly different pieces of literature with a common theme, this gracious creator from prose to poetry to narrative to mythology to prophecy to apocalypse to wisdom literature to gospels, which are proclamations of news to epistles, which are letters, um, all of which may include things like parables and irony and illusion and so forth, so forth. It's a lot of work to figure all this stuff out. I remember having a small group where I brought up a piece of irony that the apostle Paul said, which was, he was clearly kind of speaking in a, it was a bit, my, it was a little bit of a mockery. He was making a point and it was, it was hard to kind of stomach sometimes. Like, why would Paul talk like that? Well, sure. He knew how to speak. He knew how to talk. He knew how to convince, and he was doing that. The trouble with just picking up the Bible and just trying to read it through is it doesn't read like a modern textbook. A lot of times we don't know how to read these types of literature because we're not used to them, and so it can be a little bit confusing. It can sound like a lot of work, but some parts are very simple. I think anybody can read the creation narrative. And, and if you just know this, I'm, I'm telling you, Genesis 1 is like prose. It's like a song. Read it like a song. Just get caught up in it like a great song and just go, whoa, who is this God that did this? Anybody can listen to a letter from Paul to a church and consider, are there people today like the people he's talking to? Am I like any of the people that he's talking to? Um, anybody can take a gospel, which is this good news story about Jesus, and just listen to the way Jesus interacts with people and just encounter him. I remember um, reading through the book of John with a young guy I worked with. He was in middle school. He didn't grow up in church at all. And he had some of the most illuminating responses to Jesus. Like, it, they changed the way I looked at Jesus because he would hear him and just go, that dude's not taking stuff from anybody. And I was like, yeah, no, he isn't, right? Like, I didn't, I'm sitting here like a little scholar. I'm like, nah, I wonder what he means by that word. And this chase was just like, he's crazy. And I was like, yeah, yeah, right, he is. Anybody can just read it and take it in and kind of just be impacted 
by the life of Jesus. Psalm 119 later on in the Psalm says this, the word, God's word gives light so that even the simple can understand it. It's just like it lights up a room. Even the simple can understand it. And if you want to learn more, as with any great text, you can plow deeper and deeper and deeper. That's, that's another cool thing that I've discovered with reading the Bible over the years. You can read it and just encounter Jesus. And then if you want to master the teachings of Jesus, like buckle up for the rest of your life. Like I still, I can read a gospel and go, I, I don't know how to follow him yet right? So the Bible is a collection of literary works with a theme, this gracious creator, and they have been kept close and followed since, since writing has been possible. When the first five books of the Bible were written, it was when the first languages were being formed. And before that, they were sacred stories. I love how uh, Josh White described the Bible to me this way. I didn't get your permission for this, so forgive me, but he just called it the ancient wisdom, I think was the word, like the ancient wisdom or something like that. Um, Psalm 119, 140 says, the promises of God have been thoroughly tested and that's why I love them so much. That's what the, the psalmist wrote, thoroughly tested. Like many people have tried these things. Many people have followed these teachings over the years. I think we're kind of foolish to think that only modern things are wise. Have you ever thought about this? Like, look back in history at something really stupid. At the time, that was modern, and they thought it was wise, right? Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> at the time, that was modern, and they thought it was wise. Someday, even you, I hate to bring this up, We'll look back at something you believed or did and think, well, that was really stupid. Maybe we need wisdom that's older than us. Perhaps ancient people weren't less smart. Um, maybe we all kind of need to drink from the same well to some degree. So the Bible, ancient wisdom. Thank you, Josh. Um, yeah, get 10 bucks for that. Now, how to use it. Um, if, you're, if you're new to the Bible, this is sort of what I want to say. If you're new to the Bible, just try it. Like, I don't know, it's like, a, it's like getting a new skateboard or your first skateboard. Like, just get on the thing. Like, it's going to fly out from under you. You will hit your knees. But just, just get on. Just try it. Um, I am convinced. I already brought this up. And longstanding tradition agrees uh, the scriptures have concepts in them that everyone can grasp. So just get in there. Just, just go digging. Um, there's good stuff like um, my friend Rod always recites what his mother said to him out of the Bible. Let another man's lips praise you, not your own. Okay. Like he's remembered that throughout his life. Um, it's pretty good, right? It means don't brag about yourself. Let somebody else say something good about you. That's just good wisdom. And it's in there, right? Um, Jesus is very compelling. I was just telling you about my, my friend Chase and his insights. I mean, he to this day in his adult life, he never did grow up in like church circles, but he still has an interest in Jesus just because as a kid, we used to sit down and read the gospels. 
and it's never really left him. He's been curious his whole life. Um, you can even read something like Apocalypse, like the book of Revelation. Like you think it's nuts and people believe crazy stuff. All right, just tune it all out and just read it. Just try it. It's, nut, it, it's nuts, but just, just get in there and see like the, the horses and the beasts. And it was actually made to be read by people with deep imaginations. So just, just get in there and give it a shot. Second of all, um, if you read for the right reasons, um, you will continue to grow. I really believe it will work. Like the scriptures will work and you will grow. Um, the, the scriptures, I just want to acknowledge this because it's true. Um, bad people can quote the Bible and manipulate you using it. That happens. Um, people can know all the facts about the Bible and not be like Jesus. You can use it like a hammer that you just use to control other people's behavior. That's true. That's true of all good things. In fact, the biggest issue um, with like a lie is that it's a twisted truth. The truths of the Bible aren't the problem. So don't be afraid of it. They really can work. Um, I believe if you go to the Bible, and when I say if you use it for the right reasons, if you go to the Bible seeking after God, you will find God. If you go to the Bible seeking after wisdom, you will find wisdom. If you go there to learn how to please God, the path will be shown to you. If you go there desiring to learn how to be fully human, you will find that the well is deep and there is so much abundance to help you. Third, though, I want to recommend that you read it in community. Now, what I mean by this is um, don't just isolate yourself around reading something like the scriptures. And, and I don't just mean like the people here. I actually think it's great. I think getting into groups, we're doing breaking bread starting tomorrow, which is where we literally, there will be a meal in the side room and or in this room or wherever John wants the meal. Um, and a book of the Bible will be read in community. Just a whole book of the Bible. Just read it in community. It's a sweet and really beautiful thing. So, so absolutely do that. Um, read it in groups. Uh, meet up with somebody and read and talk. Uh, why do I say this? Because it's impossible as a human being to read anything and not layer your own experience and bias on it. You will do it every time. It's impossible. And the only way out of that is to hear the perspective of others and have discussion. You've got to do it. And I would even say people who are different than you. It's important. Um, I want to broaden that even more and say you should listen to the broader community of people who read and study the Bible and the historic community of those who read and study the Bible. Um, I think it's really valuable to read old reflections on the Bible as well as new, to read what scholars have to say, and then just read what people who are reflecting even within the culture I enjoy reading what unbelievers have to say about the Bible because it helps me get at like, how are they taking and hearing these words of Jesus? So read it to some degree in community. Now I would be, I would be, uh, I'm going to give you a little caution not to just read one angle. So 
I have a friend named John, and it's not John Simon. He wrote a lot of the notes for the English Standard Version Study Bible in the New Testament. It's a popular study Bible. Maybe some of you have it. He wrote the study Bible notes, okay? And he is very uncomfortable with that. And I asked him, he goes, yeah, because it's my thoughts. He said, there's some notes in there where I legitimately emailed my friend and said, does this sound right? And he emailed back, yep, and it's in the Bible. And he's like, I, you need to know those are just my thoughts. So there, you're hearing it from me, from him. Those were just his thoughts. But why did he do it? He did it because he has put a lot of time into studying. He is a scholar of the Greek language and he knew he could help a little bit. But also, he doesn't even want you to think everything he says is just it, okay? So he would advise you, go read what some other people had to say about it. Consider that as well. Um, you can read the Bible in different ways. And, and I wanna suggest that you actually adopt maybe all if, you know, some or all of these. Devotionally, this is often one of the most popular ways. And, um, and if this is the only way you read it, I'm going to ask you to expand from this. If it's something you don't, you don't do, I'm going to ask you to add this. So devotionally, that's where you take in a portion of the scripture and ask, what does it mean for my life? Okay, what does this mean for my life? The whole scripture is not meant to just be that. Um, like sometimes there's just a war in ancient Israel and you should not go, you know, beat up somebody you don't like. It doesn't mean much for your life. Um, but devotionally is something that's valid. It is valid to say, what does this story of who God is mean for me? That's a valid thing to do, but don't just do that. Um, I want to encourage meditation. And by that, I mean that you take a scripture and actually read or listen to it until it soaks down deep. Like read it over and over again. Like maybe even pick one that you read regularly for a month, maybe even a year, if it's something that you need to really deeply form you. Today, I tried a little practice of this. Abby had softball games and there was an hour and a half again. Um, this seems to be when I pray, according to last sermon, um, is between softball games as well. Um, but I went and I found a great tree and there was one tree had greener grass under it. I laid under that tree for one hour and I put Psalm 119 on repeat on streetlights, which is one of my favorite Bible listening apps. And I laid there for one hour with Psalm 119 going over and over and over and over. And that can be really helpful. Something like that, just to like hear, instead of trying to take down, you know, a ton of material, just hear the same thing over and over. Portions of it are stuck in my head right now, which is sweet. Um, you can read it as a quest. Um, this is one of my favorite kinds uh, of reading. So I remember I read in the New Testament about Melchizedek. And I was like, first of all, that's a crazy name. And second of all, he's somehow being connected to Jesus. And he's apparently in the Old Testament because Abraham was mentioned. So I went on this quest to understand Melchizedek and the city of Salem. And then I figured out that the city of Salem is kind of connected to the idea of Jerusalem. Oh yeah, Salem, city of peace, Jerusalem. Salem means peace. 
whoa, now I know what Jerusalem means. And I went on this quest to kind of understand this character, and I ended up learning more about the place, and it bounced me all over the scriptures. Try that. That's actually, to me, that actually gets me reading way more than almost anything else, because I find these just pathways through this, and you have to dig, and you might have to, you know, use an app like Blue Letter Bible, or you can go spend a lot of money and get Logos Bible software for $200, or you can go to Bookman's and sit in the, you know, Christian section, which is now in the very back of the store. It used to be kind of in the middle. Now it's like back corner. It's like getting milk at the grocery store. It's so far, but, but you go there and there's usually some commentaries back there or something like that. And you can actually plow in and and learn some stuff. That's for all of you who actually still go to the bookstore, um, which is becoming cool again, I've heard. <laughs> Systematically, um, this is where you might look on all of the info about a certain doctrine. Like you might say, I want to understand um, baptism. Or you might say, I want to understand why um, this thing is wrong. And you just start off and you go like, you can go backward or forward. You can try to begin at the beginning of the Bible and see when it pops up the first time and just see where it keeps coming up, do some research and like see how it develops. Or you can look and find something in the New Testament and go, where is this coming from? Where did this begin? Why is it an issue? So on and so forth, systematically. Or you can study like, a, like the themes thematically. And that might be, you, did, you heard me talking about Genesis and all of the, the savior figures. So you've got, you've got Noah and Joseph. Like, I'm introducing you to a theme that runs throughout the Bible of savior figures. And they are all a little, a little bit different, but there are some very common themes. And in the New Testament, Jesus starts getting compared to all of them. And you start seeing all these parallels. It's a really interesting theme to study. How does God save his people all throughout the scriptures? How does that develop? What are the common elements between these saving moments? What are the differences? That, that can get you reading as well. Okay? So we read out of Psalm 119 today. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it. It's a piece of literature. It's a psalm, but it's not only that. It's a Hebrew alphabet acrostic, which means when you find one of those, and, and how do you know that? You might need a study note, right? Like if, if you don't, I wouldn't just recognize it by looking at it. If you've studied Hebrew like John, you just know because you're so smart. But um, it's an alphabet acrostic. Usually these alphabet acrostics are showing like the A to Z, like the, the, the fullness of their subject. Proverbs 31 is an alphabet acrostic as well, talking about the perfect woman, right? It's like the A to Z woman. So you've got an acrostic about women, and you've got one about the Bible itself with Psalm 119, um, or the word of God. And so each section of Psalm 119 is one of the Hebrew letters, and the descriptors are utilizing that letter. So it's a complicated piece of poetry. Somebody put a lot of work into it, and their aim was to thoroughly display how beautiful and wonderful God's word is. And I should say, they meant to say God's verbal word, and written word. There, there's not an indication there that all has to be written in Psalm 119. That's just being honest. That brings me to one more thing I want to teach you about this idea of scripture. 
word, the word. It's always called, it's often called the word. Sometimes if you get into Christian circles, people ask you if you've been in the word, you know, and um, that's a really great way to act different if you want to go around and talk about that in front of other people. But a core belief tied to the Bible is this, that God has revealed himself to us through the way that we think and communicate, through language, through speech. Now, this, this can be kind of a, a tough topic. So you might say, okay, my skeptical friend or neighbor, or even I myself struggle with this idea that this is just people's words that they have written, right? I get that. But faith marvels at this, actually, and looks at it and says, how incredible that God chose to speak to us through the vehicle that we can understand. So think about this. What thoughts have you ever had about God outside of language? What conversation about God have you ever had with somebody that did not use words? This is how we think and speak. This is God's gift to us. It's what we use to process information and to communicate. And God uses that gift that he gave us and speaks through it. It's very similar to the essential idea of what Jesus did in Christianity. And that is that God became flesh, became comprehensible to us, came into our experience and revealed himself to us in that way. Scripture is a similar idea that God actually uses words to communicate with us and to connect with us. Psalm 119 praises um, many of these types of words. It talks about the instructions of God. You could think about a New Testament version of this might be like the epistles, like these letters that are written giving instruction, godly instruction. Um, it praises the commandments of God. My buddy Mario is working uh, with me over at, our, at the house we're working on. And he came up to me and he said, isn't there a commandment that you're supposed to honor your parents? And I thought, his kid's not talking to him, I think. He, he's, uh, he's trying to think about how to convince his kid to hang out. Um, but the, the commandments show how to love God. Like I said, there's the two tables, how to love God, how to love others. And then there's details underneath each one of those headings. Uh, Psalm 119 praises the laws, and these are the distinctions between right and wrong. And what a gift that is that that isn't subjective, right and wrong. I mean, imagine... Imagine existing in the world, going to work, driving on roads, if somewhere, somehow, there wasn't a distinction between right and wrong. Just imagine that. Try. It would be terrible. Psalm 119 praises the promise of God, the good future that he promises to us, told in the beginning, places like Genesis 3.15, by the prophets and the apocalypse, it praises all of these, but at the core, and why I chose this section of Psalm 119, at the core is a delight in God's word. This scripture said, make me walk along the path of your commands 
for that is where my happiness is found. Have you ever thought that way about God's commandments? It says in here, I long to obey. It cries out, give me life through your word. It says here, I will put your instructions into practice. And then it adds, with all of my heart. So this gets back to what happened to me at that youth convention. Um, I had been taught to read the Bible. Um, and, and honestly, that I, I don't look back on this as a bad thing at all. It was good that the Bible had been read to me and taught to me. It gave me a lot of concepts that I was able to build on. There's, there really is something great about learning it, even if you're not into it, right? But what happened to me at that youth convention is, as I view it, God spoke to me. But here's how. Here's how it happened. I heard another person's story. A guy named Jacob, who was speaking that day, got up and he told his story about how God had dramatically changed his outlook on life, how he was very down and he was struggling, and how God had intervened in his life and given him hope. And he knew that, and I think the way he said it was, God wanted a messed up kid like me in his family. That resonated with me that day when I heard that story, because I felt like a messed up kid. And I was thinking, maybe what if God wants me around too? I believe God spoke to me through the words, through the story of that man and opened my eyes to what that story could mean for me. And all of a sudden, because the Bible was where that story was contained, I wanted to know more. I wanted to know more about the one who forgave that guy, Jacob, who he told me about, who was Jesus. I wanted to know more about that God who created him, who had shaped him and formed him and redeemed his life because he had said that that could be available for me too. And I knew that was Jesus. And I wanted to understand what was in these scriptures. See, I heard his story, which was God speaking. And then it invited me into the text, into the history, into the Psalms, into the gospels, into the letters and invited me with my questions and everything I wrestled with. And I started going in the Bible and I would ask questions like, because I grew up in Christianity, for me, I said, I don't want to do one more thing that I don't understand. That was my little thing. So I wanted to understand every single thing that I did. Why am I going to pray? I want to understand that. Why am I going to do anything? I want to understand that. Why are these guys on TV saying what they're saying? I want to understand that. And I just started to dig. Now, I'll tell you that my gas tank of curiosity hasn't always stayed that full. That's kind of where it started for me. And I'll assume many of you can relate to that period of time where you were very excited and then things can change. But I'll tell you what, I've also run to the Bible out of desperation before too. I've gone through some pretty hard stuff in life. And there have been times where I was like, where else can I go for something to anchor my soul? And I found it. The, psalm, the 40th Psalm for me is a really big deal. 
because of those types of moments. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined toward me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the the miry pit, and he put my feet on a rock. And I just wanted to feel like my feet were on a rock again, and it spoke to me. One of the things that stuck out to me when I was listening to Psalm 119 today was this one little line. I I heard it, and I had to go in and find it. And the way that, that this particular translation said it was, my suffering was good for me because it taught me to pay attention to your ways. And I was like, whew, I don't know if I like that one, but that sounds pretty wise though, right? I think I might need to sit with that a little more. And I've stumbled on some really beautiful things because I was encouraged to be more disciplined. I went on a a silent retreat. Um, Mike and I did this one last year, um, but uh, but I went to one in New York a few years ago. And on the silent retreat, they wanted you to memorize Psalms. I don't like memorizing anything ever in my whole life. And I was really not wanting to memorize a Psalm, but I tried the 128th Psalm because you had to share, you had to come back and say one from memory. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, that's become a really special Psalm to me. Uh, It kind of speaks of like the blessing that stands in front of the person who follows God's word and who walks with God. It almost feels a little too good to be true, which I think is like pointiness to the restoration of all things. And it's, it's become really special because somebody invited me to be more disciplined. But at the heart of all of this is this story. So I said, I said to you before, this isn't like a book that you just read cover to cover. It's not like, oh, there's, you know, there's a setting and building action and, and swooping, you know, now it's going to get really dark and depressing. And I mean, it has elements like that. It doesn't read like a novel, but there is a storyteller. There is a story that this is witnessing to. And I think we love the Bible most when we realize that that God, that creator of all of history, who this is witnessing to is indeed interested in us. And we can know this God. That's what I ran into. That's what I bumped into at that youth convention. That's what made me love the Bible. So here's what I really want to ask you to think about. Have you encountered God in your story? Can you remember times or places or moments where you encountered God? Do you want to? And then just think about it. Who is this mysterious creator being that we can't shake? I mean, every secular school has religion courses. There's articles about it in the New York Times all the time. As advanced and scientific as our world has become, we can't shake. Who is this behind it all? Why would this God be interested in me? Why am I here? 
What does he think of me? How well am I known, right? If such a God exists, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) What is my life about? What are our lives about? Go find out. Seek the answers to these kind of questions. These are the existential questions of life. You're not the only ones thinking these kind of things. Everyone we know has these types of thoughts to some degree. Search in the ancient stories. Look for history that illuminates what's going on today. Read the old wisdom. Meditate on it. Let it sink down into the core of who you are. And especially, I'd encourage you to chase after Jesus. Who is this person who claimed to be God in the flesh? This uh, religious ritual, if you will, the Lord's table is one that I sought to understand. I, um, I actually stopped taking the Lord's Supper for a little bit when I was young because I wanted to know what I was doing. I, I got back to it very quickly um, because that quest led me running through the Bible. It sent me all the way back to the book of Ex- Exodus, all the way back to the Passover. It became a very rich quest in understanding why Jesus said he was the bread of life. And why Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. And that was so meaningful to his disciples. It sent me on a quest, curious about the imagery and the meaning of wine in their culture. How it was a sign of both judgment, but it was the drink at every wedding where they would celebrate new life and new beginnings. And at the core of this practice of the Christian church is Jesus, who said, I am the word made flesh. And he's come to us in ways that we can comprehend. He spoke to his disciples in words they could hear, and they wrote down their stories so that we could hear them too. He came here so we could see him. John, the disciple, said, This isn't just the word of God. We saw him. We touched him. We walked with him. We knew him. And we can see and experience this interaction with one another, with body and blood, and with this story that we tell in this community that's impacted so many of us. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm what you need to live. I am your most basic need. I died to be your salvation. I'm the ultimate savior figure. The scriptures were always pointing to, but I wasn't just a broken human being as John was leading our kids to consider. I was fully God while I also lived this human experience. And the ancient stories fill with light and become so simple, even a child can understand them. Like bread is broken, his body was broken. 
like wine is poured out, his blood was shed for us. But it's so deep because Jesus said, this blood is a new covenant or a new testament in my blood. And he said, I will never drink this wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my kingdom. What's his kingdom? Oh my goodness, go figure it out. Read the Bible, it's all in there. And it's incredible. So this evening we're gonna do three things. Um, I'm gonna pray for us and leave uh, two minutes of silence. Uh, and then we're going to do some things that the church has always done together. We're going to take the Lord's Supper if, uh, if you're a believer in Jesus. And we always say here, this, uh, we are not saying if you're a believer who's doing very well right now. Um, we do not say if you're a believer who says, like, I think I'm like 80%, you know, great doctrine. Now, if you're a believer, if Jesus has, if you, if you are compelled to believe that Jesus has died for your sins, then take him at his word and receive him by faith. Um, we give at this time. We have a tablet in the back, and we're going to have info that's, uh, that's going to be up here on the screen because this whole life is about God and the worship of God. Like for our community to go out, um, to be here, to go out and witness, to host things like Alpha, uh, to lead us in times like breaking bread and study, um, we've got to make it a priority of our collective life. We've got we've to fund that. Thank you for everyone who's uh, stepped up, by the way, at the end of summer. We really, really appreciate you. Um, and we're going to get our air conditioner fixed soon. Promise. Um, and then we're going to sing together. And so these, these songs are alluding often to the scriptures, often quoting them. And these are the story of God getting into our hearts and minds. That's why we sing them together. So we'll pray, we'll give, we'll take the Lord's Supper, and we'll sing and I'm going to pray for us and leave two minutes of silence for you to just uh, reach out and speak to this God behind the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, I am, uh, I'm so grateful to be here with these people. I'm, I'm really grateful for what you've done in my life. Um, I most definitely was not on a quest to love the Bible. Um, when I was a kid, I just wanted a girlfriend. And... You intervened in my life. Through that man, you told me your story. And you used him to remind me and even to, to tell me for the first time effectively that it was my story too. I pray that people in this room would sense it's their story too. If they already know that, that you would reinvigorate them to learn about who you are and to reconnect with you. If they aren't too sure about that, I pray that you would work in their life and open their eyes to who you are. And for all of our friends and neighbors we know, so many who don't know Jesus, we pray that our story would be useful in your kingdom that you would use the word that has spoken to us and changed us to enliven their souls. Give us a willingness to speak about who you are, not to you know, win over converts for us, but to witness to this faith that has truly changed our lives. And as we prepare to receive you, Jesus, I pray that we would have a repeated 
and deep experience of who you are, even now and even at this table. So lead us now as we prepare our hearts in prayer.